Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner. I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do for eight years as of today. How about that? My guest this week is Romina Dugo, an actor you might know from films like How She Moved, Funky Town, and Turn the Beat Around, and TV series like Designated Survivor, Rookie Blue, Coyote, and Twelve Monkeys. And now she plays a crucial role in Chandler Levac's I Like Movies as Elena, a video store manager in 2003 Burlington whose life becomes tangled up with Isaiah Lettinen's stunted teen protagonist, Lawrence Queller. It's in theaters across Canada right now, and it's great, and you should see it. Romina picked Il Postino, Michael Radford's 1994 drama starring the late Massimo Teresi as a lonely letter carrier in a small Italian town who befriends the exiled Chilean poet Pablo Neruda, played by Philippe Noray, and discovers that poetry will not only open up his soul, but maybe lead him to the woman of his dreams. Nominated for five Academy Awards, including a posthumous Best Actor nod for Teresi, who was gravely ill throughout the production, it won for Luis Bakalov's original score, and then kind of disappeared, because the rights went away. It hasn't endured the way it should have, but maybe Romina can help. This is someone else's movie. Il Postino, which I watched for the first time about 15 years ago, had such a dramatic effect on me that I just, I remember I was going around asking all my family members and friends to watch it. I made my mother and father watch it, which they they come from World War II Italy. Very small uh, towns that were beautiful, but very poor, much like the island that Il Postino takes place on. Um, and I think it felt so fam- like familial, the, 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 the modality of like the, of the the language, the acting, this actor specifically, I fell in love with him, Massimo Troisi, who passed away like 12 hours after they wrapped filming. Yeah. And the backstory to, because I fell in love with this actor and this story, I mean, I was laughing and crying flip side of the same coin all the time throughout, throughout the film. So I did some research on it afterward and then finding out, the backstory of this film made me cry more. <laughs> it was like, are you kidding me? I couldn't believe it. It was, it's so moving. Um, yeah. And, and, and I've watched it, I don't know, more than 10 times. I just watched it again the other day to refresh my, my memory for, for our chat today. And I watched it in a Starbucks. <laughs> I was crying crying people were checking in on me if I was okay I was laughing out loud um it's just such a I think potent film and it's it's only got like a very small handful of characters it's so simple in a way yeah I was struck by how small it is mm-hmm. and not not in a negative way um and I I have to admit I did not have the best experience of it the first time I saw it as, as a uh, I saw it with a, how can I put it? I brought in a big bag of cynicism because this was sort of the apex of the Miramax machinery where they would designate a movie, the Oscar contender, when they bought it. It didn't even matter if anyone had seen it yet. It would just be, this is going to be our foreign language contender and we're going to push it and we're not going to stop and we're going to steamroll everything else in its way. And so they sold it on the story, 
which was Tracy's death and, and, and the years he spent, and it's all true, right? I mean, he did spend over a decade trying to get this movie made. He bought the rights to the book, which was based on another movie, which is this whole weird legend that they built around him. This, this story was, was his, was his heart. And he, he pushed uh, for the, 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 the musical language of Neruda, all the, like every, every flowery, made for the poster kind of thing you could imagine was being thrown at us from the get-go from the announcement it's in the press kits it was actually where they started their honor the man honor the film formula that you know you don't sell the movie you sell the idea that it deserves an oscar because this one person they did it for scorsese on gangs of new york they did it for you know alan turing with the imitation game is just harvey weinstein was was terrific at reducing things to the cell not a positive because it obliterates all the other qualities of the film. Um, and in the end, I saw the film and it's just like, I'm watching a man work himself to death. That was my, that was my experience of it. Watching Tracy just because he looks terrible. They're doing everything they can to, to prop him up like literally in some scenes to make him stand, um, in order to get the movie made, that is his dream project and that he is killing himself to make. But the first time and even a little bit of the second time through, it just hurt to watch. Wow, I could see that. I mean, I, I came to it not knowing any of that. I didn't know uh, the backstory. I was just, I remember at the time I would go to like my local store or video rental store and just hoard films and bring them home and watch them. So I came at it a little, <laughs> yeah, I came at it a little more just naively. And uh, so when I found the backstory, yeah, I, I just, I had no idea. And I think when the film came out, I must've been like nine or 10 years old. So I didn't watch it until years later anyway. Sure. But isn't it too bad when that happens, when you're, when your uh, perception of a story, it just is so tainted by the selling of the film and it kind of ravages that that opportunity to just have like a human experience with this piece of art that was intended to be a piece of art in the first place. Oh yeah, I mean, it's the reason I wouldn't watch trailers and and wouldn't I would try to just see a film as cold as possible. Uh, actually, I went back and I watched the trailer for El Postino again, and it's like it is all positive, critical. I mean, it's it's that thing where they're going out of their where Miramax is going out of their way to obscure the fact that it's not an English language production. So you just get these beautiful shots of people and scenery and, and laudatory quotes from critics. And, uh, and now, of course, there's one with the awards folded in. But they just don't want people to talk. <laughs> They're just trying to avoid the fact, because even in the 90s, that was still perceived as negative, that a film in a foreign language might be off-putting to an art house crowd, which is so preposterous. It's really too bad. Um... Well, I, I want to circle back. So that was the first two times that you watched the film. Why give it a third shot? Uh, time, the passage of time. It just showed up somewhere. I can't even remember where I saw it the third time because it wasn't, it was an, oh, it was in HD. It was, it must've been, maybe it was the Criterion channel. Some, some streaming service had it in high def yeah. and I just wanted to see what it looked like. And it was pretty, it's just never been very well represented and seeing it in HD I guess, how can I put this? It had been so long since I'd seen it that I just wanted to see if I could watch it removed from all of it. Mm -hmm. And I like Pablo Neruda. So I figured, you know, let's, let's reconnect to that and, and have the experience and see if it actually plays. And uh, also I, I'm embarrassed to, uh, to admit, and I'm going to, uh, that uh, I never recognize 
um, Maria Grazia Cucinotta from one film to the next. So I don't know what it is. She's got a very distinctive look, but I think my brain is always sort of fighting between Penelope Cruz and Monica Bellucci and just overwriting them. (laughs) It's, it's entirely unfair to her. You know, this film does not necessarily have the most fleshed out female characters. And as an actress actor, that's something that I always look for now. Of course, at the time that I watched the film, I did not have like a a critically thinking brain in that regard at that time in my life. I just watched it for what it was and was so moved by it. And like I said, there was this familial element because the, 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 the quality and texture with which um, Massimo Troisi especially expresses himself felt like something I knew from watching maybe my uncles and my mom and dad and my nonnos. And there was something about it that felt like home, but in a very authentic way. I didn't have all that other baggage of like the, the how the film was pitched, but the female characters now looking back, it's sort of like, okay, so you'd be hard pressed to find like really fleshed out female characters in a movie from the nineties anyway. But I think the point of this film is to look at the bro love story. Like if sure. you're going to have films that are focused in on male, male characters, I think this one does a sweet job of removing some of that bravado. Like there is that line in the film that I love, which is like, I'm tired of being a man. You know, it's from one of Pablo's poet poems and, and Mas and uh, Mario, the character's name is Mario. He's, he's like, so he's just like, so like tickled by that. And he, it, it, it touch, it, it makes sense to him. He relates to it and doesn't quite know why. And it's like, Look at look at what look at how like impactful his life was um, changed by something so simple as words, poetry, metaphors, like his whole life was completely changed from this relationship. And I think that they express like this bro love intimacy in a really honest, sweet way that's sort of brotherly, fatherly, friendly um, and I think different. From like it doesn't have that like really machismo underbelly. You even see the way like the po- Pablo Neruda interacts with his wife, and it's just like it's just more chill than that like strong bravado that like you I think Hollywood often tries to portrays portray men as having. You know? Yeah. Uh, I mean it. It's funny thinking about it now. I'm trying to figure out if there's a reverse version of the Bechdel test where, totally, <laughs> yes, yeah, right. Like they're talking about women, um, but not in a. It's it's not objectification. It's not exploitative. It's yeah. two men having mature conversations about their feelings, um, and and yeah, the the beauty of the relationship is that you get to watch. Mario learn the language that he doesn't have. And it's not the language of poetry. It's just the language of understanding and, and compassion and respect. And um, as he learns to appreciate the poems uh, as a means to an end. I mean, he first, at first it's a Cyrano thing, right? I mean, it's just this tender story about a man helping another man find love through false pretenses. 
but there's this point of almost like a transference between a psychologist and a patient where they're suddenly on the same page, like literally, but also they're working together emotionally in a way that is supportive and, and, and loving and they're, yeah, the bromance for lack, we still don't have a word for what it really is. Like the friendship between two men that's, that's just based on not pretending that they don't like each other, that there is just genuine, it's affection, I suppose. It's just genuine affection between the two of them. And it's just lovely to watch. Right. It's just this genuine affection. What do you call it? And why do we have to call it something? Well, because it's just not entirely familiar. So we have to call it something. So we're saying bromance or bro love, but really it's just what it, the reason we are identifying it and calling it bro, bro love, bro story, uh, a bro love story is because they're just being two people. They're not, they're not being two dudes. That's the thing. They're just being two people talking about feelings, even when um, we're not even talking about feelings. They're just talking about a different way to look at the world. They're talking about the opportunity to see everyday things differently. Like that's what the poetry is. It's not, it's not really even about feelings. It's, it's about, you can be anywhere. You can be on this tiny Island in poverty where like the only job opportunity you have is to be a fisherman. Um, and, and it can be the same ocean you've seen every day of your life since you were born, but you can, um, you can look at it differently each time. It can be something spectacular. Um, but that's the thing is like, is it, is, why do we have to call it a, a bro, a bromance? Well, we have to identify it as something because it's not familiar yet. Yeah. All relationships have to be classified or else they might get away and do things. It's, it's so, it's that human need to understand. I mean, I guess it's a sort of compassion in, in the viewer as well. It's, it's empathy. We need to know what the stakes are just simply because where will the drama come from? Are they going to fight over this woman? Because that's usually what happens in movies when two men work together to, uh, it's a, it's your basic love triangle. Eventually we are led to expect that this will happen. But Neruda, I mean, he's married and he's a poet. He has the life of the mind. He has, he's an artist. His, I love the way he confounds Mario too, because he just, Mario just doesn't know how to relate to him. And then it turns out all he has to do is be himself. So, which is a form of love story, right? Like to be seen, to, to connect to someone on that level. Um, and be appreciated for who you are and what you offer. It's just that there's no kissing. It's just not where this goes. Even when he expresses his sexuality, sensuality, Mario, right. to Beatrice in this poem, it's not like, there's not like steamy composing music in the background. And it doesn't get like, it doesn't really get sexy even though what he's saying is so sensual, it's more like this is a matter of fact thing that he must say out loud. And it's like blowing his mind that he can compare this, her to the moon, to this, to that. And it's, um, I think that's different too with the way that I think men are supposed to quote unquote express their sexuality or sensuality. There's, there's like gotta be a taking like a, 
an acquiring or like a something has to be really bubbling. And it's just like, I I watch it and I'm like, this is so beautiful, but not in a, in a way that's supposed to um, like, supposed to like uh, attract the female audience in this, like, you know, in this way, it's just like a human, it's just human. It's not particularly female, particularly male. It's just human. And it's simple. Yeah. And what it gives us is the purest version of everyone, right? I mean, it's the it's the thing I love about this podcast is when the people are talking about a movie they love, the talking points fall away, any other prep they might have done. You just, you get the real unvarnished human being uh, and you connect over the love of the art. And Radford's genius is that he just holds the camera on people. In, now, in Tracy's case, it's because he only had one or two takes in him. Apparently, he only could shoot for about an hour a day, which, again, is incredibly tragic in the rearview mirror and remarkable that he pulled it off because it is a great performance and it's consistent. You you don't feel like it's been patchworked together as some other posthumous performances have been. But you just get these actors revealing their characters or people revealing their souls or however you want to phrase it. The camera just drinks it in. And that was the thing I didn't remember and, and was struck by this time through or this last time through where you just, it just sits with people as they change, which is something movies don't ever make time for. Just that, that slow evolution and growth without action, without, you know, incident, it's just about people listening and, and growing. And it's, it's a rarity. I think, I don't think that Radford captured Troisi's performance in spite of himself, you know, even though he had these incredible um, heart issues. Wow, they managed to get this performance and it's like, he did it. I think it's just like, imagine when you're exhausted or imagine when you're sick. You all, all of the facades, all of the control falls away from you as a person. And all you are left with is the bare bones center of you. And sometimes it's, that's often why you want to, I'll speak for myself, why I, I don't want to hang out with people. I want to be alone. Like I don't have the control to put up any kind of airs or energy or essence like it's just me and I think for myself as an actor when I'm exhausted or like if it's 2 a.m and we're shooting and we've been already shooting for 12 hours honestly it's probably going to be a pretty good take (laughs) that's that was Kubrick's thing right and Fincher's thing you just wear the actor down with 75 takes until they give you nothing but the dialogue and I think you can see that in in his performance. I I watch and I just think like the way he's blink, the way he blinks, the way he breathes, and he's actually thinking things through. And sometimes his words don't come out before his hand gesture moves. Like he doesn't have the calculations that maybe in his tip top shape he would have to have the boom. You know, it's just yeah. so authentic and so earnest that is just like it's 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 hilarious and heartbreaking um because i think it's just so authentic yeah his heart was about to stop beating like he, like 
I don't know how you get more authentic than at that point. Think of when you visit someone you love in the hospital when they're doing really badly. Like I've had some of my most intimate, personable moments with those people in those situations. And I've had a lot of close people that I love dearly pass on or be very, very sick. And like those moments in sitting next to someone in a hospital bed are like beyond cherished and cherishable because there's nothing, there's, there's nothing you can lose. There's nothing to lose. You have nothing to lose. All you have is, is that pure part of you that, you know, wishes you'd been more you all your life, wishes you'd said the thing. And then you are like, you, you often say the thing, or you are that part of you that you've been trying to cage or hide from people. Um, and I think it's like a beautiful gift, unfortunately, that we got that performance at that time. Cause I don't think it would be the same movie if we had him in his tip top shape. But unfortunately a lot of Western, um, like Hollywood cinema, North American cinema does not get more of him and does not get more influenced by his particular genre of comedy that is so heartbreaking. It sucks. Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on Shiny Things, my twice-weekly newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming project. Last week, I wrote about the unexpected maturity of Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, and the weird habit Canadians have of embracing, and then immediately looking for flaws, in artists who succeed outside the country. Not that it stopped us cheering Sarah Polly's adapted screening win Sunday night. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io, or find a link at the Semcast Twitter account. Hey, this is the other other thing I do. Come check it out. It's true. And usually what happens with this sort of film is that there's a rediscovery of the catalog, but it didn't really happen just because, I mean, I think his films, I would wonder if his films would travel because comedy is always so specific and precise too. I, I think I saw one other movie right around the same time that made it out here. And I can't remember it at all. Maybe it was Ricomincio da Tre. I'll start again at three. There was one film he did with Bellini. That's a different one. And I didn't even watch the whole thing through. Um, I think I could not get the full movie, actually. Some of them are have been hard to get my hands on. But we were talking earlier, just mentioning the documentary that's come out. Mario Martone, or Martone, I suppose, uh, directed a film that just premiered at Berlin called Somebody Down There Likes Me. Yes. So what is this now? Almost 30 years after his death, he's being rediscovered and celebrated. June 94, he died. 41, too. I mean, he looks so much older in the film. I know. I mean, it's, I know it's, I'm sorry, I don't mean to make it emotional, but it is this, it's such an odd thing to be discovered posthumously, right? Which is how most, most of the North American audiences, certainly the Miramax audience encountered him. And yeah, I'm just, you think about everything that could have done, you think about everything that might have happened. Certainly, had he lived, the film would have been just as good. And like, it's not that that came out weird. Um, his, the film was finished before he died. There's obviously, the movie would have done great things for him had he survived to be celebrated. And instead, it's that weird rubber band thing where it snaps back and you get all the praise that you deserved while you were alive, but only after you're gone. 
Yeah, I, I think, like I said, because I watched the film without any knowledge of the hype behind the backstory, right. um, it was it was incredibly moving and exciting. And um, as an artist, it just awakened something very, like, urgent in me about what um, dramatic comedy could be. Um, but for them as artists who created this, piece of cinema I just also think how incredibly satisfying to have been yourself because as an artist like you want to make art that is so close to the truth but then you also have this human ego that's attached to you at all times telling you like ah that's a little too real that shows a little too much and you have the artist has to say yeah but we're not gonna listen to that right now we're gonna go for the dark, scary truth. And I just, I just think, you know, how incredibly satisfying that he got to do that. And Radford probably as well, because they were in it together, you know. Um, but but Troisi was supposed to co-direct that and he wasn't able to because he was so sick. Yeah, he was he was credited for it on the Italian release. He was credited as co-director, but nowhere else. And it feels like him, doesn't it? Like it, it actually does feel like a conscious hand. It doesn't, I've, I've always surprised when I remember Michael Radford directed it because that's someone who I wouldn't expect to be making an Italian, a film that is so Italian. He's, his earlier films are so very English. He made like, he made the John Hurt 1984 adaptation. It's, it's not the sort of thing you see following that in a, in a person's filmography. But as a collaboration, it makes so much more sense. Oh yeah, it, it, well I I agree. Um I think he can't I don't think I don't think Radford could make Il Postino without the the genuine life experience of Troisi having been from Naples having the life experience he's had knowing the culture. I mean, I just I don't think he could have made this film independent of Troisi, I don't know, like, so I think I'll start again at three, which does feel like Troisi. I think he directed that one and wrote it as well, but it's a very similar feeling vibe of, um, of, of comedy, but maybe what Radford brings is there's a certain cinematic, like beauty and elegance. Mm -hmm to an otherwise rough-edged character and story um, that, like, Troisi doesn't have in some of his other work. So maybe that's, like, where the collaborative magic happened, is sort of the aesthetic meets the genuine culture. And they created this piece of work that Hollywood accepted. I could see it. I mean, he knew how to do it, right? He had the he he had access to the machinery, I suppose. Um, Radford, whereas Tracy is uh, a little, yeah, rougher edged, maybe, or just more performance driven than cinematography inclined, that sort of thing. Yeah. Somebody, to, a detail guy. He needed a detail guy, and the film it turns out, and the film that I had seen is the one that he co-directed and co-wrote with Benini, mm. which was not great. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Italian fantasy comedy made in the early 80s. I remember when Benini's star caught fire, a lot of his earlier stuff surfaced, and that's how I saw that. And 
I'm not even sure I recognized. It was after the fact that I had to realize that it was Tracy because he looked so different. And also I didn't, honestly didn't like the movie enough to remember very much of it, but uh, that's not his fault, I don't think. I had a similar experience of what I did see um, uh, from that film, but I think that's just, that's just being a, a person that isn't perfect from the start and you grow as an artist and you get better and you work on your craft and you get to know yourself better. And then you develop more confidence in who you are as a person. So then you can be more of that or access more authentic elements of that in your work and your work gets better. So I, I know, I wish I could look back at the, the other, his other, bodies of work and, and say, well, I can get like the, I can get the juice I got out of Il Postino with other works too. And, but you can't because he was a growing artist and he was evolving. And, and certainly if you succeed, if initially as a comic actor, you're going to get more offers to do more comic stuff. It's not his fault that that's where his immediate career went, but you can, as you say, with Il Postino, you can see what he was aiming for. And the fact that he was trying to make this all along becomes its own sort of reward as well, which is so clearly always where he wanted to go. And I mean, a younger version of, of Tracy would have been, I think he would have been wrong. I think he needed to be, I mean, certainly he, he looks older than 41 in the movie, but he needed to be that age. So we have a sense that he's missed opportunities, that, that this guy isn't the person he wants to be. And when you're in your thirties, you, you're just not there yet, no matter how, you know, depressed or down you might be at any given moment, there's still so much potential ahead of you. And here's a guy who's just starting to see the end of that and, and realize this time is up in a different way. And yeah, you, you see so much of that on his face before he ever speaks, before he ever expresses who he is. We see who he wants to be or we see who he isn't. And that's the, the beauty of the whole movie, the hook of it is watching him become the person he always wanted to be. I think that's really lovely too, because I think a lot of stories that have to do with, well, you've like, your time has expired on possibilities for opportunities and dreams to come true. Those are often like female stories, whether sure. like cinema or in real life, it's just like, well, how old are you? Like, where are you at in your life? Well, you know, that, that ship has sailed nonsense such nonsense we just made it all up and then we just buy it and then we just do it but no i have that's i think that's truly changing but um it's a story of that happening but for this this male character and i think it's also a disservice to like i, I just i it's another one of those ways that the movie sort of crosses the the stereotypical story for a, for a man versus a woman it's like no, he's got, he's, he's going through what you just described. He's going through this, he's at this time in his life where like his dad just wants him to get a job and get married already. Like just, you know, it's sort of like he's peaked at some point. We didn't see it happen because he's certainly on the downgrade at this point when we see him in the story, but it's, it's so, it's so beautiful because it's something so simple. Like these words change his whole life. And um, yeah, so I, I agree. I don't think it would have had the same impact if he had been cast at a younger younger age. Um, but also, it's, isn't it sort of heartbreaking that this whole backstory about his heart? So because it impacts his performance so much, you might as well like sort of talk about it and how 
his first uh, like six or five or six valve, heart valve operation when he was like 19, he had to, it had to be paid for by like culmination of friends putting together, you know, some money for it, pooling their money together. He couldn't afford it. And I mean, at this point in his career, like, why didn't he have it sooner? I don't know if he, if he could have, right? Like it sort of makes you wonder the, the money of it all given where, you know, where he came from in his life. And I don't know. I, I don't know. Did, was it so readily available? Why did he wait so long? It's like, I don't know. Maybe that's a factor. Yeah. Well, he'd had, um, from what I've been able to, to, to glean, he'd had, uh, juvenile rheumatism, I think, uh, yeah. which, which damaged his heart and never really lifted. I mean, he, he recovered from the disease, but the damage was just with him for his entire life. He had a number of operations, as you said, and apparently there was going to be one more, which he put off to make the movie, which again, I don't know if that's true or part of the marketing, because that's absolutely something Miramax would have come up with at the time to make people feel even sadder so they could get an Oscar. Cause really, whether it's true or not, he absolutely could have used more surgery, but, but yeah, I where, what, what was the state of heart surgery in the nineties? I mean, I, I don't know enough about it to, to comment. And certainly he was a massive success in Italy in the eighties. He presumably money was not the problem. Maybe right. it was access. Yeah. I guess, I guess it's all just, we would never know, but the movie itself, maybe, you know, I don't know. Maybe we've ruined it for listeners who will watch it now because they'll know the backstory. But um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I just I maybe it is about maybe part of it is a, a sort of that fit um, that physical understanding that I. I under I understand the physical humor of it because of my my own culture and background, but um, I think it was ahead of its time in terms of like how it's portrayed its male characters. Oh, very much so. Now, I mean the um, the easiest way I find to figure out if a movie was ahead of its time is to imagine it being remade now and wonder who you'd cast in it. And sometimes there's only one person because it's dated, and there's only a handful of actors who sort of inhabit a period sensibility in the present. But now, if you think about it, I mean, you could cast almost anyone. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a whole generation of male. Like Ryan Gosling is obviously the person who springs to mind because you could, he's the right age right now. You, he's got that poetic soul thing going, but he can also play lunkheads and idiots. So you could, you could see him as someone who's never had to act on his potential mm -hmm. discovering it. Although I don't think he'd be interested in doing the part, but just, like pretty much anybody except Jared Leto at this point could do it. I, it's the people I think of. Joaquin Phoenix? You'd kill it. Joaquin Phoenix? Yeah, I guess so. I guess, yeah. Joaquin Phoenix might be too old. Ryan Gosling might be too beautiful. But maybe mm. not. But if you made the film today, you'd have to, you'd have to give Beatrice Russo some you, you, you need to give her like a human existence with complexity and and uh and depth and desires aside from just working at the bar and maybe you know falling in love um yeah you'd have to change a few things oh yeah i mean she's my first instinct is make the movie about her 
Like focus it on her Love and, it. and have this strange little fellow come into her life with poetry. And it's sort of a, I mean, it's almost, God, I hate that I'm about to make this comparison, but it's almost a you've got male situation where he, he is the person she hopes it will be, but he's not sending her poetry in secret. He's reading it to her. So it's a different relationship entirely. So that won't work. Never mind. But who would you even, who would you cast who would instantly give that character more of a, more of an inner life? I'm all, I'm, uh, uh, I'm good with like casting Canadian or American actors or Australian or British who have to play some other cultures. But, but I, I do think if this was going to be made today, it sh maybe should be like some kind of obscure unknown name to play Beatrice. Um, like, I don't think you need, you would cast like Penelope Cruz or, or something like that. I think you would cast someone kind of like in um, White Lotus, like those actresses. Oh, right. But I've never seen them in anything. I'm sure they're doing extremely well in Italian cinema and television. But for me, I don't, I didn't know them from anything else. And they're so wonderful. And it's also interesting because it'd be an actress who has to have the, her first kid in her forties. Because you're not going to make her like a twenty-something-year-old, and and Mario's like in his late forties. We're not going to do. We're not going to do that. <laughs> no, hopefully we've moved on. Hopefully we've moved on. I wonder. I get distracted by the hypotheticals because I'm just fascinated by the way things would. I mean, now it would be like an eight-part Hulu series. I have no illusions. It wouldn't even be a movie anymore. That's so true. I know. This. Yeah, I really hope theater like uh, cinemas is, is not going to is not going to be our video store story one day. Nah, it'll come back. I mean, it is coming back. Top Gun Maverick brought people back to movie theaters and now everything has to be Top Gun Maverick. But other than that, I think it's going to be OK. Good. Yeah, well, it's desperation more than anything else. <laughs> Still works. But there's room in the world for small movies. There's room in the world for I like movies. Um, for example, a film about people in a space that is, Ooh. you know, set 20 years ago and still speaks to the moment in ways that uh, are almost distressing. Um, and and uh, and it's I'm trying to figure out if there's a connection. There really isn't because the whole point of I like movies is that it, it's it's a story about a kid who wouldn't understand poetry if someone stapled it to his forehead. He, he is not capable of having that sort of inner life. He has decided on his course of action and, and the whole movie is about whether or not he will learn to be a person. Uh, and your character is a big part of that. But you're not the Neruda. You're not like, it's not that sort of relationship. I was trying to come up with a, with a simple comparison, but it doesn't really fly. There, there is though. I think there is a comparison, not necessarily in the dynamics of the of those two relationships, but in the way that everyone has a dream, whether you are on a small poor island in Italy or you're in Burlington, Ontario. That's like a through line. Is this notion of what, like, what is the cap? 
like in Uposino, there's like this cap on the town and it's you're a fisherman. Like that's the most, that's the most, that's what you can do. Or you can work at this bar. Um, you know, it does come up in the film that he wants to leave town with Beatrice. You know, he says, oh, they're all ignorant here. Like no one thing, no one's a big thing for here. We have to leave. And that's, that, that is similar to um, Lawrence's character. He, he doesn't think Burlington, Ontario is like, is good enough. Really? He doesn't even think Canada is good enough. He's got to go to NYU. And I'm not faulting him for any of that. I think, though, dreaming is a through line with all of the characters, including my character. And whether it's like dreams that might come true, getting more realistic about what you want to do with your life or having something smash your dream into small, tiny pieces and do and and how do you come back from that? Huh. Yeah, you're not wrong. That <laughs> that's, the, that's the most I'm gonna get. Well, you're not wrong. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's great. I would never have put those two together, but you're right. They are they are sort of in conversation with each other a little bit. I mean, was there the 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 way I go out on the podcast is always by asking the guest if there's something of the film they brought onto the show that they've used or borrowed or outright stolen in their own work. Is there anything in? Did you pull anything from Il Postino for for the role of Night Like Movies? I don't see. Again, I'm I'm having trouble piecing, I'm connecting the two, but maybe I'm missing something there too. I think maybe indirectly looking back at it now. Uh, I think, again, I think the, the probably the biggest reason I loved the, the film is Massimo Troisi's performance. And I think, I think some part of me would aspire, whether it's happening or could happen, I wouldn't even assume to like think so grandly, but I think there is like this part of me that would aspire to find the brutality and the humor in a circumstance dawned upon me in life. I think, I think that's what he does in his film. And I think in this film, you know, in, in ways, my character is just trying to survive and keep it together and take what she has and, and make a life or at least be alive. Um, but she bumps up against this young man who um, is in a place in his life where he dreams so much. He, you know, he's, it's like those high school days where you have these immense dreams. That's where he's at. And his like narcissist ways bump up against other characters in the film. And, and, cause us to like turn the mirror to ourselves really and face, face ourselves in ways that we were not planning to do, you know, just like avoid that section of life and, and hopefully just like be able to get up in the morning and do your thing. And I think because of him, because he is this tornado of a teenager, um, you know, characters are given the opportunity. Certain Alanis character um, is given this opportunity to face her history and where she's at and, and maybe have a chance at a real life 
So that's sort of a long and very indirect answer to your question. But I want to be like Massimo Trozzi. I want to act like player <laughs> too. No, it's a hell of a goal. <laughs> you got to have goals. Yeah, just keep the cardio up. You know, like stay healthy. <laughs> oh, shoot. I mean, it's one of those monkey's paw wishes. Be careful. Right. Well, we're not talking literal, but we're talking artistically, you know. Okay, that I can support. Thank you. My thanks to Romina Dugo, who you can see in Chandler Levac's I Like Movies in theaters across Canada right now. In Toronto, we've got it at the Tiff Bell Lightbox, which is, if I do say so myself, a very nice place to see movies. Thanks also to Morgan Moss. She knows what she did. Rose not on Twitter, but you can find her on Instagram at Romina Dugo, all one word, no apostrophe, and you can still find El Postino on DVD, but you'll probably have to scour used bins and eBay. It's not streaming anywhere either, which is really annoying. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. Happy anniversary, everybody. And thanks for listening. I'll see you next week.